Hi everyone, welcome to the second season of the Modern Golden Age podcast. My name is Joao and today I have with me Tashin. Tashin, thank you so much for doing this. It's a pleasure to talk with you. How are you? I'm a pleasure, friend. I'm doing very well. Happy to be here. Yeah. So I, I decided to start uh, this podcast by stealing one of your questions, actually. You have a podcast, the Rich Truth Podcast, which, by the way, I love. <laughs> and uh, I, I only recently discovered it, actually. And I'll, I, 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 I want to share with you, like, um, my journey to get into your work, but I'll do it later. I want to start with the question that you uh, you start your own podcast, which is basically tell us a little bit about who Utashin is and what do you do? Okay. Yes. Uh, well, I am a wandering pilgrim or monk or quasi-monk, whichever you'd prefer. And uh, I live a pretty simple life and I try to spend my time on various service projects, uh, ideally projects that help people, but also are enjoyable for me and fun. And uh, and uh, also I'm supported by generosity. So I have a Patreon and that's that's how I make my living. And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I travel from place to place, staying with different people and, um, you know, anywhere from like a night to six weeks or a couple months. And then, um, yeah, spend my time on my service projects. And, um, you know, I, I spend quite a bit of time online on Twitter and with my podcasts and various other things. So very online person. And uh, yeah, that's that's sort of who I am. Yeah. So like one of the things that I really enjoyed uh, when when getting to know you is was like this whole uh, traveling around uh, lifestyle. And one of my questions is like, how does that work? Like, do, do you um, choose the place where you're going and then you try to find friends there? Do you just uh, do friends offer you and you just accept the offers? Like, how does that work, if I may ask? Mm -hmm, of course. Um, yes. Uh, well, at, at the beginning, I just asked around for friends and said, oh, you know, I'm planning on doing this. And would would you be one to put me up? And, um, you know, now people sort of know that this is how I live. And so offers come to me and I keep a list of different places that I can stay and uh, uh, sort of just decide as much as possible from visit to visit where I'm going next. But in some cases, practically, especially since I have my service projects, I sort of need to know like, oh, you know, uh, for example, I'm going to Vermont next. And um, I, it's because I'm going to be running something there in September. Mm -hmm. And so it's like I knew I was going to be there for that. So in some cases, it's um, sort of deciding in advance. But um, yeah, I have plenty of places to stay all over the world and people often offer more. And um, yeah, it's just a matter of deciding where and when I want to go. Yeah. Yeah. That's like one of the things that I really value. Like, so I, I after the first season, I realized that one of, to me, one of the common values that was post that was presented by the different guests around the modern golden age is courage. And to me, that takes uh, a lot of courage, like the kind of lifestyle you're, you're having. So uh, did you, when you decided to do it, was it something like you decided like, that consciously did you have like some kind of fear to do that so uh, i'll guide us through that process of deciding to live uh like a quasi monk style mm -hmm. uh lifestyle actually yes well um i think it sort of starts in 2015 which was the year that i first trained in the monastery and one of the things that i did that the year was um, i went on a walking pilgrimage and this was something that my teacher had told me about 
Sorry for All, and that, you know, he was also inspired by many people, but in particular, Peace Pilgrim, who's become quite an inspiration for me as well, since I've learned about her. And um, uh, the way that um, I was taught walking pilgrimage is less like, oh, you're going to a specific holy site and you're going to go there on a specific route, which is which is an established, mm. well-known way of practicing pilgrimage. But this is a different way where, where you don't have a destination in mind. You just start walking and mm. you get to a fork in the road and you sort of have to decide, well, if I don't have somewhere that I'm trying to get, how do I decide whether to go left or right? And there's this activity that um, you could call trusting or surrendering or having mm. faith or courage where that that you can actually practice. And it's like, well, I think I should go left. Uh, yeah. For some reason that's not logical or reasoned, you're like, I think I should go left. So you go left. And um, you can bring that same quality into each of your decisions. Decisions. And, yes. And so I did two walking pilgrimages at different times, one in Vermont and one California. And then um, uh, let's see, when I left the monastery last year, initially I was planning on getting a job and an apartment and, um, you know, something like that. And then I realized, um, that really wasn't going to work for me. Basically, mm -hmm. I, I got this job that was on paper perfect for me. Um, it was with people that I loved doing something that I cared about using all of my skills. It was a nonprofit. And I still was just like, oh, I don't like having a job. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, uh, I felt very um, cramped by it. And and meanwhile, you know, I was working on my own projects and those just felt so much more enlivening mm -hmm. and fun and, and I think beneficial. And so I was like, how can I make that work where i'm just working on my projects and mm -hmm. there were sort of these two sides of one um starting my patreon so that people could support me and then also yeah asking people to stay with them and go from place to place and yeah um i think those were the biggest fears in the beginning were um that i wouldn't have enough money or i wouldn't have a place to stay and for the first few months i really worried about that quite a bit and then at a certain point you know, essentially, I realized that uh, from the meditation perspective, worrying about those things was just worry from like the, the hindrances from a Buddhist perspective, one of the five hindrances. Um, I have a blog post about that if people are curious and learning more, but worry is just a hindrance. It's just a phenomenon in the mind that's not particularly helpful, right? Me worrying mm -hmm. about it wasn't getting me money or getting me a place to stay. And I did have money and I did have a place to stay. So it just didn't seem useful. And I said, okay, basically, I vow to not worry about either money <laughs> or a place to stay anymore. And um, anytime that those worries come up, which they still do periodically, I just, I, I know how to work with them as a, a meditation practice, basically like how mm -hmm. to resolve them. And so um, I just don't worry about it anymore. Or if the yeah. worries arise, then I let go of them. And um, so far I've had enough money to live and I've had places to stay. And uh, it seems to be a very wholesome, good way of life. So. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So you, you touched on a, a specific point, which is meditation. And I want to go back uh, until before uh, Tashin was uh, the uh, uh, as, like the monk you are. So I, I think I read or listened to somewhere uh, that you started meditating on college when you were 19 years old. That was your first practice to the, on, on meditation, right? Why did you decide to start and how did that go? Mm -hmm. Well, um, in high school, I had a period of being a very fervent atheist, you know, mm. uh, like for some reason, I, I wasn't even raised particularly theistic, but I was like, oh, God is 
false religions are bad. People are trying to lie to me, manipulate me. For some reason, that was how I saw the world at the time. You know, maybe just like when you go through a rebellious stage, that was the ideology that came to me at the time. And mm. um, in my school, I went to St. John's College, which is a liberal arts school where everyone has to do the same thing, including reading the great books. They're, they're behind me over there, the books that I read in school. And in the sophomore year, you have to read, you know, um, the 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 Torah and the New Testament and mm. various works of theology and it's not it's despite the name it's not a religious school but it's 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 part of the Western civilization and I knew yeah. in advance that um, reading those books was basically going to be triggering for me because <laughs> I was like oh I I hate religion so much I hate the idea of God and and that I needed to develop some kind of essentially maturity to be able to read those books charitably mm. um, and I wanted to read them charitably but I knew that I wasn't able to do it so at that time and so i hit on basically a plan of exposure therapy where i i i read the summer before that i read the great religious texts from the east or some of them mm. uh, so i read uh the dhammapada and i read the bhagavad-gita and uh the Tao Te ching and then i read various other sort of like ancillary ancillary like western pop buddhism books and that sort of thing um and the razor's edge which i love um, from somerset mom and all of those books sort of clued me in that religions were pointing to the same thing something that was real some kind of experience that's transcendent hard to put into words but isn't the point isn't to manipulate you or hurt you it's to help you access this sort of supra rational beautiful transcendent experience of understanding who you are and what the universe is and mm -hmm. They might use different metaphors or symbols or have different sort of ideologies around it, but it seemed like the core was the, the same goal. Yeah. Yes. So that was very persuasive to me. And yet um, I didn't want to adopt a religion because I was still sort of scared of it or afraid of it. And uh, meditation seemed like something that I could do on my own without believing in anything or um, worshiping anyone or paying money or mm -hmm. needing to understand the world in a particular way. I could just follow my breath, for example. Um, mm. And uh, that's that's sort of how I started. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And, and, and then that ended up developing into a more serious practice because I listened to a podcast where you said that you were um, you were putting in every day like uh you, you you're basically you were basically taking out what you were putting in basically you were meditating like 30 minutes every day and you were feeling more focused and and uh, more aware in your day today uh but you wanted a little bit more right um uh, and so tell us a little bit about that like what followed your daily practice of meditation like how did you get into uh the next level let's call it that mm -hmm. Well, I started meditating. It would have been the fall of my sophomore year of uh, college uh, or late early winter, December, something like that. And, um, uh, you know, that was about six months of meditation that I did on my own half an hour a day. And then that summer I did my first retreat. And I, I remember very distinctly coming back from that retreat and just being like, I want to do this for the rest of my life. This is the most important thing. And I want to do as much of this as I can. And this is just so important. And uh Oh, was it a retreat? Be... Sorry, oh, sorry. It, it was a ten-day retreat, one of those Goenka retreats, a Vipassana mm -hmm. retreat. Yeah. Um, and 
yeah, and then the question became how to actually do that. And I, I considered dropping out of school for a little while, um, just like maybe that's more important and um, eventually decided not to, but uh, I decided to finish my education. And then I was, it was sort of like, you know, the metaphor I like to use is like, I was jogging half an hour a day. I was like, a, just amateur jogger. And I was like, no, I want to like train. <laughs> yeah. And um uh, and, and my meditation was just so poor at the time. Uh, it was just like, I basically what would happen was I would fall on my breath and get very frustrated with myself that I couldn't do it. And I was like, what is happening? This is hard. Um, and so I knew I needed help. I knew I needed a teacher and a community. And, and from that perspective, it, it, it sort of was obvious, oh, a monastery could be a thing where I could practice as much as I'd like to. And um, then the question became which monastery to train at, because I looked at various monasteries in United States and in Asia and, you know, found a lot of places that I really respected and thought was doing great stuff. But it was clear to me, I'm not going to be able to train there because I, you know, I was an American millennial, you know, from the suburbs, like, that's a very different cultural context than, you know, being, say, for example, a Thai person, I went to a trained at a Thai monastery briefly for like a retreat. And, um, I was like, wow, that's this, what they're doing is beautiful and inspiring. And they're definitely doing good training. And I am not going to fit here. Like I am not a Thai yeah. person. And, can you, can, uh, you, yeah. can you just explain like some of, like when you say uh, they were doing some training and you weren't a, a Thai person, like what, what were the specific things that they were doing that you, you think um, you weren't uh, so inclined to do? Yeah. Um, well, I'm 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 totally an amateur, right? So I have no idea what the differences are between the different monasteries and all that. So if you could please give me some context, I, I would appreciate it. Of course, of course. Um, I think Thai Buddhism is, in my mind, very similar to, uh, say, like Roman Catholicism, where mm -hmm. um, it's obviously a very different culture, but it's it's ubiquitous in Thailand. In, in certain parts of Southeast Asia, Thailand was the place I was most familiar with, but certainly this would imply, apply in other countries as well with, we know with differences for mm -hmm. the local culture, but um, it, almost everyone is Buddhist. Almost everyone trains in the monastery at some point in their life. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of like cultural infrastructure around supporting the monasteries. Um, most people mm -hmm. donate to monks. People go to the mo monasteries periodically. There's a lot of, um, religious iconography and symbolism mm. and ritual and it's incredibly beautiful i had no issue with it but but all of that all of that cultural infrastructure was built for the thai culture and I, mm. it's like um i didn't can see that it. it was good but it's I, i'm just i'm not a thai person so Got it. um i think that when you take a religious tradition from one sociocultural setting and transpose it into another say western the western world then it seems to me like that transposition is going to work for some minority of the population five ten fifteen yeah. percent and it was obvious to me like i am not a thai person i'm not a japanese person i'm not Sorry. korean um i'm not vietnamese yeah. i love all these cultures and appreciate them but it's i'm i need an american western yeah. thing approach yeah that makes a little sense uh, and so you ended up going to to a monastery and like one of the things that i'm really curious about are like what are some of like let's say like three four five lessons or, or situations or stories that happened while you were there that really had a profound impact in in you and in 
your own path. Yes. You know, I think a monastery is a lot like what I imagine, say, joining the military might be like. I've never been in the military, but people who've been to a monastery have this sort of shared experience of like, oh yeah, that's what it's like. And um, it's 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 not actually that complex or or special mm. but it's rare that people have that experience and so um if you know you know and if you don't you don't but i'll try my best to explain um i think um for starters it's, it's just it's just highly regimented there's a schedule you know it depends on the schedule and what's done at different places but you know typically everything is scheduled to a time and a place and you are supposed to be there and you're in trouble if you're not there and often it's like very early or very late at night and there's a lot of silent meditation usually you're working with the teacher um i think that sort of schedule was very helpful for me i mean i was in my early 20s when i started training and um just gave me a lot of discipline and strength of just uh, adhering to a form like that. And um, I think one of the, um, you know, and there's a lot of things around that of like, for example, having to make your bed every day, or, um, you know, you have to cook. I had to suddenly had to cook for like 20 or 30 people several times a week where previously I'd only cooked for myself or a few other people. I was like, now I have to cook for 30 people or, um, you know, having to be responsible for various chores or various duties in the monastery, like increasing your capacity for responsibility. And when I was when I was, you know, 22, 23 or whatever, um, the amount of responsibility that I could successfully hold was much lower than now at 31. You know, um, I had I made a mess of things and uh, like wasn't capable of nearly as much. And importantly, I think um, that structure really helped me over time to build that capacity of responsibility and how much I could hold such that, um, you know, it, it's like I was a level three person in a video game and now I'm, you know, it doesn't matter what level, but a higher level that's, you know, not infinitely mm. capable, but more capable. Mm. And um, it's very much um, like progressive where mm -hmm. you successively get more and more responsibility, the more you can mm -hmm. handle so that was helpful to me. I think associated with that, a lot of times the bottleneck was less specific skills that I needed to gain, which I did need to gain, but um, often it was more like about my own internal capacity for noticing and resolving my own emotions or psychological difficulties, mm. and also like communicating with other people that might be going through something similar. And mm. to the extent that I couldn't do that, I would suffer or cause suffering for others. And mm. so it doesn't make sense to have a tremendous amount of responsibility if you're just going to either explode internally or really hurt someone externally. Yeah. Um, so I had to, I mean, really, frankly, I look back and um, how to put this, how to put this, I need to say this kindly to myself, but I, I mean, it, it hurts to remember, but there there was a lot of suffering there's just so much suffering and um a lot of it self-induced and um mm. and learning how to not suffer in that way and not like i'm free from suffering now but the kinds of suffering that i cause myself are less frequent or less intense and um learning to work with that and and mm -hmm. just hold my own experience compassionately um that um another one that comes to mind much later on it was very transformative experience was um 
at a certain point, I was in charge of fundraising for the monastery and for the whole nonprofit organization. And um, I have a post about fundraising that I wrote that's like basically everything that I learned from that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had several fundraising mentors that really helped me learn how to do that. And there were, again, a lot of practical skills that I had to learn that I did learn. But most importantly, at the core, um, I had to work with directly a sense of shame around receiving or asking for money. money. Yes. And um, just really confront that. That was just, for some reason, that was so embodied. And I had to realize, um, and I still don't, I don't know how I could like transfer this transition, but it was something like realizing that um, what I'm asking for, for money is a good thing that should exist in the world. And to the extent that I'm connected to that, that I really believe this is a good thing, then um, it makes sense to ask for money. Like you yeah. should ask for money. It's a good thing to do so. And um, that, gaining a sense of knowing that certainty that it was a good thing, confidence yeah. and being able to ask it. And that was, that in in, 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 in a large ways, that's um, part of what's made my current life possible because mm-hmm. I'm not ashamed to say, oh, I have a Patreon. You can support me if you want to, or, yeah. um, I have specific service projects that I do that I need to raise money for. Where like I made an animated music video last year that um, this uh, I raised sixty five hundred dollars for, which was the most that I've raised for a personal project. I've raised more for nonprofits, but for a personal mm-hmm. project, I was like, no, this this is a good thing. It should exist. This video yeah. is great. It's going to be great. Um, and so um, I, I don't have shame asking for money if it's a good project anymore. Yeah yeah and it's a great video and it's so funny that you mentioned that because here's, here's how i like how i got old of, of you on the internet um so a bunch of months ago i someone posted like the google document where you have the draft for your ebook um which was which is called the path of love um and and i remember looking at it and i just like scrolled to a bunch of chapters and quickly read some of it and i thought this is such a, a great idea i really want to read that and i'm going to be honest it, it just ended up like on this list of thousands of things that i want to read in, <laughs> <laughs> right and so, but and, and so i i didn't associate that with uh you so it was it was a book that i i've read and well uh, that i wanted to read and that's it then on twitter there was this dude called Dashin was which had this amazing avatar i i really enjoyed it this destroying that you actually have here in zoom as well uh and and so which by the way was made by sylvia i think right was sylvia that's right yeah yeah shout out to sylvia uh and 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 so uh i so i started to, to see you there and but then I don't know who else shared uh, that post on fundraising and I clicked on that post and that was transformative because it, it just it was the perfect moment because where I'm working right now we work at a nonprofit I'm working on a nonprofit we were uh, uh, in the moment of the year where we had to do some fundraising uh, and even though it's not my main uh, job in the in the organization I, I'm always trying to help and I saw that and it was so it's such a beautiful enlightened piece where you understand that first of all you need to 
understand your own relationship with money and with your own projects and then as you say like asking for money is something that that really makes sense so i read it it had a deep impact on me i sent it to the people that were responsible for fundraising and only then i realized that you were actually following me on twitter i was like oh my god that's so awesome and then after i think it was actually after uh after our first conversation or actually what was to be our first conversation that was only then that i connected the book that i had on that with you as well and so i i i still haven't read the book i'm sorry i'll pl i plan to uh but but like that that's how i got into your 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 work and it was phenomenal to understand that you had like these three great uh pillars let's call it like that in 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 your own life which is love curiosity and empowering uh, or empowerment um and i wonder i was wondering if you could talk us a little bit more about each one of them like what do they mean to you and when you say that you're trying to bring that into the world like specifically what you want to do uh, or how do you want to do it and talk us a little bit more about your service projects that are somehow related with these three pillars yes yes finding these three areas or pillars of my work has yeah, been um, the a, a major theme of the time since I've left the monastery about a year ago, year and a half ago. Um, it's almost been an experience of unfolding and noticing what's already there. So I think these threads have been there for quite a while, but formally acknowledging them and um, sort of weaving them into my projects has been extremely helpful for me personally. Just be like, ah, oh, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> it, it's because, um, you know, if you if you work a, a, a traditional job at a nonprofit or a company or something, you get a job description, right? It's like, okay, we would like you to be like, what, what's what's your official job title at your work? I'm I'm a pedagogical coordinator. Okay, pedagogical coordinator, perfect, right? And 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 presumably at some point you saw something that's like a job description for what that is, and it has a title, and it's like yeah. these are your responsibilities and the skills you need, and you're like, ah, oh, okay, I know what I'm doing. I, yeah. I haven't had the luxury of that in the last year and a half. It's like, okay, I'm going to work on service projects. Um, what am I? How do I frame it? How do I understand it myself? How do I describe it to other people? And so this really feels like um, almost like finding my job description you're in. Yeah. Uh, it's like, oh, that's what I'm doing. I've already been doing it. But okay, now I know um, these three things. So um, let's see. So, so they, they sort of really unfolded for me in, in noticing that they were there in that order. So I'll take them in mm -hmm. order. So um, love, um, you know, when I was at the monastery, I did various forms of teaching, uh, meditation and, and Buddhism and spiritual practice. And something I noticed during the time that I was there was the form of meditation that I most enjoyed teaching and people seemed to benefit from the most was uh, loving kindness, metta meditation. And I just felt th th there are many forms of meditation that I've practiced that I've found helpful and I've taught them. But that one, um, of course, it, it's been extremely helpful for me personally, but I really enjoyed teaching it and people really seem to benefit when I teach it. I just, I would leave it happy and other people would leave it happy. And, um, you know, they would, people would be like, uh, referencing times that I taught it and it just clearly really had an impact on people. And in in retrospect, I think some of that is that uh, the I I never really liked the way that I was taught meta myself, and mm. I thought that I could do it 
better and that uh, I, th I think I do teach it better than it's taught uh, in, in some ways. And so um, typically, you know, not in all cases or something, but like mm -hmm. uh, that was that that was an important thing to me of, hey, this this is a skill that's useful and I, I think I can do this well. So um, that's been a big part of it over time. It's, it's sort of spread from Metta in particular to all of the Brahma Viharas, which are, you know, four Buddhist qualities that are sort of mutually supportive and, and related, but distinct. And then also recently, I've just been finding it useful to call it the English word love, um, because I think it encompasses other positive qualities as well, like, you know, gratitude or forgiveness or, mm. you know, just acts of kindness or things like this. And so um, I still speak about the Brahma Viharas in particular when relevant, um, mm -hmm. but increasingly find it it's about teaching and spreading love inspiring mm -hmm. people to practice love uh that's the first this first sort of pillar can can i just pause you to ask you some questions around love so um i i think i have like two different questions so the first one is um like for someone who's listening to you and understanding that there's a specific kind of meditation, and I, I don't want to go into all the different types of of, of meditation because you did a, a really a really good podcast on that. I don't remember with whom, but I'll post the link on the description uh, where you you talk about all these different kinds of meditation. But for someone who's listening to you and just realize, oh, there's a type of meditation around love and kindness, and I really want to do it. And let's say that that someone is me because I really wanted to do it. So how did you like? What do you recommend for someone to to start working on on that specific um, practice? Well, importantly, the kind of meditation that it is, is one you might call cultivation, where you're intentionally creating certain qualities in your experience, which is in contrast to, say, observing your experience, say, following the breath, which was my first meditation technique, right? There, mm -hmm. you don't try to change the breath, you just notice it. And that can be jarring for some people to be like, oh, I'm creating something, I'm intentionally creating something, that's that's different. Um, and uh, it's like the difference between, say, strength and cardio or something of like, uh, those are just different kinds of exercise. They're both exercise, but they're different. Um, yeah. So you're creating, what you're doing is intentionally creating loving thoughts or feelings of any kind. And mm. there's basically infinite ways to do that. And it's a matter of finding ways of creating loving thoughts and feelings that really work for you, that you enjoy doing, ideally that create those feelings in your body where you can actually feel them, which takes time to learn how to do. But there's sort of... Um, a period of trial and error where you're like, oh, how do I create these thoughts and feelings? And what does resonate for me? And that's part of why um, I like to teach lots and lots of different ways of doing it, because what works for me might be different than what works for you. What works yeah. for you might be different than your friend. And so yeah. by trying on these different ways, you can kind of work out over time, oh, this is the way I like to do it. And that works for me. And I'm going to do more of that, right? Perfect. Yeah. And, 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 and like, I saw because I, I really wanted to get into it. I've seen people like talk about meta for a while, but I didn't understand what it was. Uh, and I noticed that you have like uh, uh, some YouTube videos on it, right? And you also do like this live meditation uh, around it. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Like, do you recommend like following the videos as a way to actually start uh, doing it? Or do you rec recommend to first do the live sessions on, on Discord, I think, and, and and then, or on Zoom, I'm not sure. On Zoom. Uh, and on Zoom, yeah, sorry. And then do, do the videos. 
Oh, well, I think I try to have a lot of different ways of sharing it available because different people prefer different things. So the live sessions, for example, are recorded so that people can listen to them at any time. So I always like to joke that if no one shows up to that event, which has never happened, not once, there's always at least one person so far, but if no one shows up, I'll still record it and someone will listen to it later, you know? Um, But I don't know if you like recordings, those are available. If you like a live session, you can actually talk to me. Those are every Saturday, they're totally free. Um, I have my book. If you like that, I have a blog post that's shorter. If you don't want to read a whole book, it's the same. Basically, the blog is being turned into the book where the book is a longer version of the thing. Um, I think, uh, you know, I have those videos that are that's a series of 10 minute short videos. Um, Those are Mm -hmm. available as well. Just kind of pick the one that seems like functional for you and do that one. Perfect. We'll have like all those links in in the description or in the uh, blog post about your your episode and people will Um, follow. Yeah, go ahead. One thing I just add about that real quick is like, I really think that the way I think about this is um, different people are going to resonate with different teachers. And so um, I think the kind of people that will resonate with the way I approach it is maybe different than you know, who would resonate with a different teacher. And so uh, if you're interested in these practices, but you don't happen to resonate with my, the way I talk about it, like Mm. there's lots and lots of other people that teach it and uh, that, you know, you don't have to do my stuff. So I like Robert Bea and, you know, there's a bunch of other teachers out there and would really recommend exploring if you don't happen to like the way I do it in particular. Okay, perfect. So uh, that's love. Let's go to the second pillar, uh, curiosity. Yes. Well, second area. Um, sorry, pillar is my word. Your is area. So no, no, no. I've used the word pillar, but it, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. But uh, um, yeah, I think um, this was sort of the second one that came online for me of noticing this. Oh yeah, that's what I'm doing. Because at first it was a question like, okay, well I teach meta and I'm doing that, but how does this other stuff fit in? How does uh, the blog fit in? How does my podcast fit in? How do my Twitter threads fit in? How does me reading a book at three in the morning on a Saturday fit in, you know, like what's going on here. And, um, you know, I've had my blog in its current form since uh, arguably 2019, 2018. It was on Medium and then I moved it to my domain. Um, I've had blogs before that. So, we're, you know, I've been writing for years in different forms and uh, that's always been a part of things. And then I started my podcast early last year. So a little less than uh, a couple of years that that's been around. And, uh, you know, kind of, there was an open question for me of how does this fit in? And I think, um, yeah, eventually I realized, oh, I'm, I'm just following my curiosity. I'm curious about a lot of different things. I have a lot of questions about the world, about other people. The more I live, the more questions I have. And I want, I, I've had the experience of really having a question and then satisfactorily answering it, right? Like, oh, now I know the answer to this question. And then I become curious mm-hmm. about other stuff, but you can actually answer the questions that you have to some extent to your satisfaction. And that's a deeply fulfilling process and um, mm-hmm. asking questions, being curious, finding the answers, repeating, iterating that. And um, you know, even if you do answer a question, new questions open up and um, the blog and the podcast and other things I do are, are ways of following that curiosity and seeing where it yeah. leads me. Yeah, perfect. And the third one, empowerment. Yes, this has really just come online this year of of consciously noticing that this is what I'm doing. Um, mm-hmm. I think at its basis, there's a specific teaching that my teacher Suryu shared of a vow, which comes from Buddhism um, in different forms, but also, you know, you find echoes of the same kinds of ideas elsewhere. It's not exclusively limited to Buddhism, but, you know, 
a more common way that you might talk about it is as a, a life purpose, right? Um, I don't particularly like that framing myself. I like vow or gift is, is a word that I've been liking for it recently. But this idea that your life has some uh, larger intent that mm -hmm. you can fulfill and how to find that and how to live it. And I found that frame very helpful for me personally. Um, you know, one way of putting these three things, love, curiosity, and empowerment is like, that's, that's my current way of conceptually understanding mm -hmm. what my life is about. Right. And uh, finding that has been very meaningful and fulfilling for me and clarified things and helped me to be of service to other people. And so I want to help other people do that. And to some extent, every time I'm interacting with someone, I'm assuming, oh, this person also has a vow. This person has some purpose. They have some goal or, or quest or journey that they're on. And is it possible for me to know what that is and to help them, right? I might not know what everyone's is. I might not be able to help everyone. But if I do know what someone's is, if I have a sense of it and I can help them, then I want to help them. That desire arises naturally. And so, um, you know, for, for, for quite some time, subconsciously i've been acting on that desire to notice and help people in their vow i think um, looking mm -hmm. back on different projects that i've had they were like sort of doing that like like for example um one project that i did was the digital productivity coach that i worked on with my friend james stuber and basically um people were asking us for help with the learning the productivity skills that we learned and it was like well a lot of people are asking us and we can't have 10 hours of conversations with yeah. 100 people so we built this tool to help people do it and it's like that's that's empowering people that's helping them to level up their capacity to act in the world and act on the things that they really care about that's that's a form of empowerment right um so it's still pretty early days of consciously doing this there's a program i'm running mm -hmm. next month with uh, james actually and also mary and uh, my friend mary and it's called give your gift and it's sort of like taking a small cohort of people and trying to intentionally help them live their vow or, or give their gift mm. and um Beautiful. part of that will be about discerning what their gifts are and then mm. also giving them specific assignments that will help them to move forward with giving their gift awesome yeah so yeah that's that's a, a beautiful answer can i ask you something which is like why do you call it vow uh because gift i understand purpose too but why vow i really like some i don't know why but there was something that resonated deeply with me when you said but I, I i'm not sure why why it was like why do you call it that yes yes i'm glad that you're attuned to that i think um i've made some lists of all of the different words that you could use for this concept and i mm. think some of them will really resonate for some people and others will even be aversive for some people. And I think mm. some people hear this word and it's like, no, no, I don't want to vow, like promise that feels heavy, like vow, oath, like it feels burdensome yeah. or heavy. But for me, definitely this sense of inspiration. Um, first off, this is just how I first learned of it. This is the word that my teacher used. He, mm. um, I believe was influenced by one of his teachers, Bodhidhamma Bhanteji, who um, practiced deeply in Rin, Rinzai Zen, but also importantly in, uh, a, a, a form of Buddhism that's that's um, probably not that well known in the West, but it's called Embedkar Buddhism. Uh, he um, practices and teaches in India, and basically, Embedkar was a contemporary of Gandhi, who um, was aiming to, you know, Gandhi was sort of aiming to reform the caste system, but 
and Bedkar wanted to end the caste system. And uh, he converted from Hinduism to, or I think he might have been, I'd have to double check that, but in case he converted to Buddhism and specifically created this form of Buddhism that was a social, socially active form of Buddhism aimed at ending the caste system in India. And yeah. um, my teacher trained there for a while. And this is something that apparently I'm hearing this like secondhand, but that Bodhidhamma Bhantiji would say is people, that's what people are. They are a vow. That's just what they are. Mm. <laughs> and um, apparently I asked Soryu about this recently, and it comes from a concept in Mahayana Buddhism called, uh, I believe the word is pranidhana or seigan in Japanese. Um, and I, I am hoping to talk to him more about this at some point, but this is apparently like an old idea in, in Mahayana Buddhism that he translates in English as the word bow. And um, the basic idea there, I think, um, the way that he talks about it that really deeply inspired me is less that, you know, for example, with a life purpose or, um, you know, there's a sense of this is preordained, say, from God or the universe mm -hmm. or something where it's like there is a specific purpose that you are here to do and you either do mm -hmm. it or you don't. And the way that he talks about it, it's 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 um, um, it's where your desires meet the world's needs, basically. Yeah. And there's a conversation between you and the world. And it's yeah. at that point that the vow is. And for me, that's a much more the words that I would use to describe that are emergent and iterative rather than predestined mm. or something like that. Yeah, in closed, um, yeah. So so like, for example, um, no one ever told me, Tashin, you're gonna make music videos, right? Like that was if you told me that two years ago, I would have thought you were nuts. Like, what are you talking about? Uh no, <laughs> you're crazy. Um, and yet at a certain point in dialogue with the world and my own desires, it was like, oh, mm -hmm. I should make a music video. Okay, yeah. cool. Uh, and now I'll make two and maybe I'll make some more in the future, I hope. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, that's 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 a perfect example of this sort of thing where it's it's not um, it's not something you could have predicted or preordained, but it's it's in dialogue with your life and the world that it sort of emerges. Yeah, that was so beautiful. I love it. Uh, it, it really because I had something in here in your answer just help me clarify that that iterative process and also like because purpose is almost something like um it's it's only about you usually right it's your purpose but a vow it involves that you have it with with someone right with the world and so and it does really really make sense so thank you for that answer um so as you know uh the podcast is called the modern golden age podcast and I deeply believe that everyone that i've been talking with um in the first season and i'm about to talk with in in the second season is doing some kind of work that i believe it um will lead humanity or it leads humanity closer to what uh, modern golden age is uh and so i believe of course that you're also one of those individuals and i wanted to ask you like when you think about this concept of a modern golden age like what do you think about like what what is to you a modern golden age? And just to, to, to give you some context, like I you know Vizakan from Twitter, uh, and he has this meme about the Domino's meme, right? That ends with Golden Age of Humanity. That was the meme that made me create the podcast and do this whole change mm. pursuing it. Mm -hmm. Uh and so with that in mind, like what's your own um definition of a modern golden age? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um the first thing that comes to mind for me is an experience that I had last year 
pretty shortly after I left the monastery of um, basically I took MDMA and it was the second time in my life that I'd taken MDMA and uh, I took it in high school once very small dose and so this was arguably like effectively the first time I'd taken it and um, uh, I had this experience of a lot of wisdom coming to me basically and I, I had to write it all down and a lot of my favorite tweets are actually things that came to me on that trip um, and one of the insights that came to me at that time, and this is sort of framed in my own way of seeing things, and uh, in particular, kind of a Buddhist lens on things that you know may or may not resonate for someone listening to this, but was extremely resonant for me personally, was mm -hmm. a sense of we are at a moment of intense change, where things are changing dramatically, rapidly, in complex, hard to predict ways. And I had this intense sense of either we are going to enter, you can take this literally or metaphorically, it works either way. If, you, if you're not sure, take it metaphorically. Uh, I think <laughs> probably that's better. But metaphorically, we could enter a hell realm where things are really, 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 really bad. Um, you know, all of the worst scenarios of climate crisis or nuclear weapons or AI devastating the world or whatever it is, right? Or alternatively, we could enter a heavenly realm where things are really, 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 really good. And it, and the sense I had was it's going to be one or the other. There's not going to be yeah. an in-between. It's like either going to be really bad or it's going to be really good. And from that perspective, if it's one or the other, then the thing that makes sense to me to do for, with that insight was put all of my efforts, all of my energy, all of my time, all of my skills into making a heavenly realm rather than a hell realm. And so, uh, who knows what will happen, or even if that's true, but that's 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 one way that I conceive of my time and efforts is just trying to make things better, good, rather than worse, right? And mm -hmm. um, yeah, so then the question is, what is what do I imagine? And um, uh, how to put this, how to put this? Yeah, I'm just gonna lean into answering this question the way I see it, which is, uh, uh, over the last year, I've also gotten quite interested in magic with a K and mm -hmm. not something I ever expected, but it's sort of a thing that I've become interested in. And um, I actually recently published a piece called The Dark that's about my experience with time magic. And um, a lot of that piece is specifically about relating to the past, things that have happened to me in the past, even in very difficult experiences that I've had. And um, I've also, and I haven't written as much about this publicly, but done some work with the future and possible futures that could arise and what would it actually look like for us to enter a heavenly realm and i think over the winter i did quite a bit of work on this and sort of imagined a lot of different things and i wrote i don't know maybe 10 or 12 private pages about what this would look like and maybe i'll publish some of that at some point i'm not sure it's very personal but um mm. one of the things that really how to put this really felt like a guiding light of possibility for me was um somewhat tricky to describe but something like this is a very clear intuitive sense but i was looking at my days and how i spend my days and there's a lot of different things that i do with my days you know as, mm -hmm. as we're talking about right there's a lot of different yeah. things that i do i might write i might dance i might have a zoom call i might record a podcast you know i might draw I might uh, go for a walk, I might do Tai Chi. There's a lot of different things that I do. 
and I fill my day with as many good things as I can. I just try to do all the good things every day. And um, there's sort of a, a finite capacity of how much good things I can do in a day. And so the sensibility I had for the future was, what if it becomes radically possible to amplify how much good things you can do in a given day and with who and how many simultaneously? So for example, what if while having this podcast, I could also be writing an essay and drawing something and doing Tai Chi and be in some deep concentration state all at once, right? Like, wouldn't mm. that be incredible if I could do all of those things at once and with no sacrificing quality, you know, some of them being social with someone else, some of them being highly being private. individual. Yeah. Mm. And like, just almost like parallel activities and um, a sense that that might become possible. Um, I don't know that that's true. Epistemic status is I dreamed it sort of <laughs> waking dream, hope, aspiration. Uh, but that would be nice. I would personally like that. I can imagine other people not liking that, but I would like it. Um, and, um, and, and involved in that was not only a sense that the individual could hmm. uh, do things in parallel, but also, um, how to put it, the sense of self would change and become extremely networked. I think we're already seeing this with Twitter. You're mm -hmm. like, oh, he's already following me, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, right? Like Twitter is a very highly networked complex thing where, you know, there's, I think, like group consciousness basically happening. And so Absolutely. what if you take that and dial that up and, um, you know, uh, various cognitive, emotional, interpersonal capacities can be distributed through people in a, in a more increasingly meaningful way? Yeah, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and also, one of the things that I, I do believe it, 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 it's, it connects as well is, is this idea that you talked about group consciousness. And what I mean by that is that... Uh, there, there's no way we can build like a modern golden age based on uh, an individual pursuit. Uh, it has to be something that's the collective building and, and, and dreaming, right? And that's why like one of the things that I love and I want to do is in, I don't know when um, I'm working on it right now. I don't know when I'll be able to manifest it into the real world. Um, and when I say manifest, I'm not talking about just just imagine like being able to build it which is basically something that i call metis which will be like this hub here in portugal where people can come from all over the world to work on this concept called modern golden age like any project that's somehow related to that people can come from all these places and build something there and connect with people there because i believe that when we when we're able to bring those interconnections that happen so easily on twitter to real life suddenly things become like i personally believe that it the bar raises suddenly you're able to dream bigger and to create bigger and think bigger bigger and so that's one of the things that i really want to do uh you mentioned magic with a k can you explain what you mean by that yes uh of course that word is associated with a lot of different things and uh, in particular, probably like Western magic and occultism and so on. And those are things that I've read about and, and have sort of inspired me to the extent that I've been exposed to them. Um, yeah. However, what I really mean now in my own use of the word is basically causality, causality. And in particular, I think central to it is the belief that thoughts and feelings and the way that you see the world can have causal impacts. So in the sort of materialist worldview that's sort of a, a, around, um, the only thing that matters, say, is like bodily actions or interactions and physical 
things. But if you think that your thoughts and feelings have causal impacts on the world, then that leads to a different way of seeing things yeah. or a different way of behaving. And so Absolutely. if you take seriously, as I do, that thoughts and feelings have impacts, then that's what I mean by magic. Perfect. Magic. Yeah, perfect. We're very aligned. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I believe that's a superpower uh, mm -hmm. that that's available to almost anyone. It's just it's just this, this <laughs> small change on the way you see the world. But it's really hard to get people to, to do that small change. Uh, and I, I'm not sure why. Maybe people are afraid that that with that comes a lot of responsibility, right? The, yes. Yeah. The thing that, yes. well, maybe if suddenly my thoughts and feelings have this all this impact in the world, maybe I don't want that because yes. maybe I'll have thoughts and feelings that I don't want to affect. Right? Yes. And and that will be like a, a good indicator that maybe one should work on their own. Like, uh, and and yeah, I I we're totally aligned with that. So I, I'll I'll just have just uh, uh some more questions, and one of them is like. When I decided to create among the, this podcast, I first of all I, I started. I, I believe that I had to start a podcast with this very clear vision of what a modern golden age would look like. Now, uh, actually, not now, but when I started, before actually starting the podcast, I realized that that was going to be impossible because who, who am I to say what a modern golden age looks like? I'm I'm just a, a, an individual, so it it made sense to co-create that. And after talking with a bunch of people, I'm starting to craft this this more clear vision, and I'm writing about it. But even so, one of the things that I still want to find not it's it's the common patterns not only uh, among the definition, but also about values and practices and goals that one should have while living this 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 modern golden age so my question to you would be what are some of the practices that you believe one must have or we as humanity must have in order to um let this modern golden age emerge mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think that a new conception of relation to even mythology of self and humanity and life is going to be increasingly important. I think that um, one thing that I talked to my teacher Soryu at one point about was like something like we need to make two jumps from identifying as nations to a global planet, and one, and then from there also identifying just as humans to life. And so I think that mm. developing right relationship with um, not only the other humans on the planet, but also other animals and species and plants and the earth itself, um, and, and, and in some ways returning to a, a, a very um, enlivened sense of other beings on this planet and the earth is very important. I think that that mm -hmm. is a critical part of healing the, the wounds that are present on this planet at this time uh, that we're as humans sort of inflicting on each other and the planet. Uh, I think we'll have to reckon with those things and reconcile them. And um, if you see other humans and other species and the planet itself as um, connected to you, related to you, as your family, as worthy of love, then that's a very different view than, um, you know, oh, those people are from a different country or that's a different species mm -hmm. that's inferior to me or, mm -hmm. oh, the earth is just dead matter, you know, that doesn't have any importance um that's a very different way of seeing things and um if you see things that way then you tend to act in certain ways and yeah 
those ways when scaled cause things like global warming and uh, you know other difficult problems, which are still real, right? Um, we actually have to reconcile with, we have to address, notice, resolve the problems that mm. we're causing in order mm. to have this golden age, right? To avoid, avert this sort of hell realm, right? Yeah. Um, so that's one thing, like really holding other life and other animals and plants and other humans and the earth itself in a new way. Um, related to that, you know, something I, I really see more and more with this work on love that I do is we want more love in the world. We want to be more loving ourselves, to be more loving towards other people, to have more love in the world. But th the reason to do that is not uh, that there is a shortage of love or a lack of love or that there's a problem or we're not sufficiently loving. It's that love is infinite and boundless and there's always more love to feel and express and act on. And mm. so given that you would always want to embody manifest demonstrate express more and more love not because there's a shortage but because there's more available um, yeah so i think connecting those two things can we live in a way that really has reverence for honors respects not only other humans globally around the planet mm -hmm. but also all life on this planet yeah yeah that's beautiful i i really enjoyed that jump from like the first one is pretty easy to understand like countries to, to global planet but uh the jump from human individuals to life can you um clarify what you mean by that mm -hmm. you know i think when you do metta practice one of the things that you cultivate is seeing that if someone is alive they are worthy of love and respect and care and kindness and that's something that you can practice noticing and you can practice expressing and acting on. And, um, you know, a simple example would be the love that a mother feels for her child, right? Mm. Um, a baby hasn't done anything yet, is not skilled in anything, can't take care of itself, and yet is still worthy of love, right? It's just worthy of this unconditional love simply because it's alive, right? Mm -hmm. um, and can you notice that same quality in everyone that you meet, right? Um, even if you enjoy their particular, like I'm enjoying this conversation and I like mm. you, and, but but even if I didn't like you, right? Could I still see that you are worthy of love, right? That yeah. you're worthy of respect and care um, removed from particular circumstances or conditions, mm -hmm. right? Um, then if you see that quality, that is true regardless of what species you are too. So, yeah. um, you know, the way that most humans hold this sort of thing is, um, and, and this, this, this breaks my heart to feel into really is, 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 um, you know, on the planet at this time, there's a lot of, um, concern for basically social justice and, um, specific ways of seeing the worlds where, where, where people are, are being harmed for the identity mm. that they have or the way that they are. And I feel for those things. I think that there are real problems that are being identified there. And at the same time, I think uh, there's a similar kind of problem that's to me even greater that we're doing to other species that I would call speciesism, where we see 
other species as being inferior to us, mm-hmm. right? And no, people might not talk about that, but that's just baked into a lot of activities of like humans mm-hmm. are this great species that can think and do all these amazing things. And other species are, you know, just dumb and can't do what we can. So they're less than us. They're inferior. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's both unkind and untrue. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, reconciling that um, if if you start to see this quality in animals, in plants, even in the land itself, that because it's alive, it's worthy of the same love and respect, regardless of whether it can uh, do calculus or have a Zoom call or speak English or Portuguese, um, it makes much more sense to have an attitude of love and reverence and care and respect yeah. than one of um, discrimination and hatred. Yeah, yeah, that makes a little sense. That and. I, 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 I'm aligned with you um, that that transformation needs to happen in order for us to get into uh, a modern golden age. Sheen, um, I we're, we'll wrap this up. Uh, I just wanted to to once again um, just being very grateful. I'm I'm very grateful for you being here. It was one of my like you said a lot of things that will I'll need to digest them uh the vow is definitely one of them the 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 the, you made me think once again about not having a problem with my own beliefs on magic with a k uh and so and i'm really grateful for for our conversation i have only two um questions left so the first one is is there any question that i didn't ask that you would like me to ask you Can I ask you a question? Sure. Uh, There's something that I am constantly encountering that I don't, haven't been able to put into words in a way that I really like yet. And I'd be curious to ask you about it, which is something like, so we're having a conversation, right? And Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's a really beautiful thing that happens in conversation. And how, how would you describe what's beautiful and precious about conversation? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, I think that I'll, 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 I'll probably think about it and give you a more complex, a more detailed answer or more thought answer. But what appears is, um, so my background is in music um, and I played I was a jazz guitarist and a musician for a while before having a wrist injury. And one of the things that happened, I, I think conversations the same way as uh, playing jazz. So what I mean by this is that each, like I bring my knowledge, you bring your knowledge, or let's let's not call it knowledge, let's call it worldview. So you bring your world worldview, I bring my own. And what happens is when, when you're in a jazz band, you each member brings its personality and its knowledge and when you're playing suddenly there's like let's say i'm playing with other two people and the music that emerges is something that's it comes from all of us but it's a separate identity which is basically composed by the the three world world not worldviews but the three um individual crafts let's call it that, that right and so the music the the jazz song it, it just 
emerges from the, the connection and the, the symbiosis between these three individuals. I think conversation is the same. Uh, my favorite thing about conversation is it, when it becomes something that's it, that it's not my own, it's not yours, it's it's both of us, right? Connecting, it's it's our own conversation. It's, it's something that it transcends who I am and who you are and creates this third object, uh, which is only possible because I bring what I have to the table and you do the same, right? So I think I would phrase it like that. Um, it's, it's music. Uh, conversations are, are, are music to me. Uh, and Beautiful. yeah, so that's how I put it. Um, yeah. But I'll think about it, and if 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 anything else comes up, I'll I'll let you know. Um, thank you so much, Sashin. The last question is: if people want to connect with you, meet you, donate to your Patreon, please, where do where do they can find you? Yes, where can my they website find is uh, tashin.com, T-A-S-S-H-I-N.com, and I'm also pretty active on Twitter, Tashin Fogelman, F-O-G-L-E-M-A-N. Uh, that's my last name. And uh, yeah, those are two good places to find me. Yeah, well, we'll leave the links in the description to that, to all the articles that you mentioned, and also to some of your YouTube videos. And for the Rich True Podcast, which is something we didn't talk about, but it's an awesome podcast that I totally recommend. Uh, Tashin, once again, thank you so much. Uh, yes, and so I'll much see you. Well. Yeah, I'll see you guys all uh, in next week's episode. Bye. Mm-hmm.